Uh, This feels so weird, and it feels so normal. Uh, So so good to be back. Uh, Really good to see all of your faces, uh, old friends, and uh, hope to make some new ones here as well. Uh, It has been nine months uh, since I've been in Broad and uh, taking my first step in this room uh, just brought back a flood of memories. Uh, thank you for uh, all of you who, who prayed for me uh, and my family as we transitioned out of Grace on Campus and Grace Church to our new church in San Jose, Hillside Church. Uh, it's been a blessing being there. Uh, just to give you a little snapshot, uh, when we first arrived at our new house, uh, our fridge was stocked full of food. There was a ton of food in the cabinets and on uh, the kitchen table. And at first I thought to myself, oh man, the previous tenants forgot to bring their stuff out. Uh, But I realized that was for us. And uh, there were cards, uh, handwritten cards from the church. Uh, There were gifts for my sons. Uh, There was uh, t-shirts and uh, mugs and other Hillside Church swag. And uh, really the the church has felt like family from the very beginning. Uh, They've been so warm and uh, so welcoming. They've taken a ton of initiative to get to know Our family invited us into our homes and things like that. And so I just love my church family, but I definitely miss it here. And just just being here is pretty overwhelming. Uh, Just looking back at my time at Grace Church and Grace on Campus, uh, I am just so, so thankful uh, for all that God did in in my life and in this ministry. Uh, I came here as a freshman and... uh, Four years of college, uh, without a doubt, were the four most important years in my spiritual growth. And uh, for that, I am eternally grateful to God and to this ministry for for what I experienced here. Uh, In my room at home, uh, I have three group GOC pictures, the gigantic ones, you know, like the the long ones, the poster ones when we take the group pictures. And uh, from time to time, I uh, just kind of stare at it. Uh, These pictures span a GOC class of 2012 class of 2022. Freshman, good to meet you, by the way. Uh, and I, I just think back to all that God is, is doing and had done. Uh, just a lot of memories pop into my mind. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm looking at certain people and I remember uh, just the ridiculous things that we did together and I start laughing to myself. And then Linda walks in and she's like, what's wrong with this guy? And I'm also, you know, I think of sobering memories too, just uh, being in the trenches together, doing ministry, serving alongside each other. And uh, all of that is just a sweet, sweet memory. Uh, it, it is just the understatement of the century to say that GOC will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, to, to get to know you, uh, to serve alongside you, and to watch God grow you and use you for his kingdom and to be a, a gospel light on this campus has been the privilege of a lifetime. And so I just praise God for, for all of that. And it's, it's good to be back. Uh, well, Austin has charged me to preach the word to you tonight. And that's what I intend to do. Uh, to begin, I want to tell you about December 17th, 2011. The day that Linda and I were married. At about 6 a.m. on this day, Linda and her bridesmaids wake up for hair and makeup. Me and my groomsmen wake up around 10 (laughs) a.m. For Super Smash Brothers. (laughs) And then we roll in for the wedding. 
Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's another story, but I was almost late for my wedding. About 2.50, wedding starts at 3, so I roll in, and uh, eventually I get up there to the front at the altar. Uh, Austin Duncan to my right as he is going to officiate the wedding, and uh, my best friends to my left. Uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with emotion, thinking, oh, it's finally happening, and those back doors swing open, and there she is, uh, my beautiful bride. And I think to myself, Good, she hasn't changed her mind. But I think, no, no, she's beautiful. And uh, she comes down and uh, everything's a blur. We do our vows. Austin preaches a sermon. I don't remember a word of it because I'm just focused on Linda. And that marked a significant change in my life. December 17, 2011. It's, It's no understatement to say that everything changed with that day. And my schedule changed. The way I use my free time changed. The way I use my money changed. My house changed. Uh, everything changed. Not only that, my relationships changed. I found out that Linda's friends were pretty cool. And so we would hang out with them. We would do dinner with them, go out with them. I played basketball with some of her friends. Uh, her friends became my friends. And, and on top of getting new friends, I also got a new family. I got a father-in-law, a mother-in-law, A sister-in-law, her name is Grace. A brother-in-law, his name is Peter. Uh, And uh, this family has become my family. Uh, We've gone to Disneyland together. We've gone on vacations together. We've gone to China together. Uh, They went to Cancun without me. I'm kind of bitter about that. But still, (laughs) this family has become my family. When I got married, a lot of my relationships significantly and permanently changed. And The same can be said about all of us when we became Christians. Our relationships changed. When we decided to follow Jesus, we all of a sudden had a new relationship with people who were also following Jesus. When we were adopted into God's family, we got brothers and sisters. And so when the gospel had its effect, its saving work in our lives, Our relationships were changed forever with this group of people called the church. And that's what we're going to study tonight. Turn over to the book of Romans. I studied with you guys Romans chapters 1 through 8. And yes, I am sad that we were never able to finish. And so tonight, uh, we're going to study chapters 9 to 16. What if I wasn't joking? All right, we're going to be Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Some of the freshmen were panicking there. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. And as we read, let's back up to verse 1 to get a running start, since verses 3 to 8 are grammatically and thematically tied to the first two verses. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Tonight, we're going to do a few things. Uh, We're going to first study this passage and look at three changes the gospel makes in your relationships. Uh, Three changes the gospel makes in your relationships. Uh, Then we're going to explore three applications of this text. And lastly, we're going to look at three myths that geoseers believe. We're going to bust those myths. So three changes, three applications, three myths. What is it with preachers and the number three? I don't know. We like it. All right. Three things, uh, three sets of three. So first of all, three changes the gospel makes in your relationships as a believer. I'll give them to you up front. First of all, an attitude of humility verse three. Uh, Secondly, an understanding of unity, verses four to five. And third, a commitment to serving, verses six to eight. Let's first look at how the gospel brings an attitude of humility, verse three. Notice that the word think is used three times in verse three. Let's read it. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. The emphasis is on your mind. Think, think, think. This ties back to verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The first thought of the renewed mind, the gospel changed mind is I'm really not that great. If you've truly understood everything Paul has written about so far, if you truly understand Romans 1 to 11, uh, that the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness from heaven, chapter one, uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, chapter three, uh, that you're saved not by good works, but by faith alone, chapter four, uh, that... God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, chapter five, that you are saved by the sovereign grace and sovereign election of God. Not anything good in and of yourself, chapters nine to 11. If you understand all of that, you are going to be humble. These are the most humbling truths in the universe. That's why verse three says this humble thinking is really just thinking with sober judgment. To be humble is simply to be level-headed, to be sensible, to be thinking clearly as a Christian. On the other hand, to be prideful, to have this inflated view of yourself is to be foolish, to uh, give you the word picture that Paul does, 
to think of yourself more highly than you ought, to be prideful is like being drunk. And being humble is like being sober. What happens when you're drunk? Uh, Your judgment flies out the window. Your common sense falls to the ground. Uh, You're just not living in reality anymore. Spiritual speaking, spiritually speaking, if you as a Christian think that you're awesome and you have a high view of yourself, then you're acting drunk. Your judgment is all out of whack. Your common sense is all out of whack and you are simply out of touch with reality. Why? The end of verse three explains. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Each Christian has been given a measure of faith. We all have different levels of faith. Uh, Some have strong faith, some have weak faith. If you read on in chapters 14 and 15, there are some who are called strong in the faith and there are some who are called weaker brothers. But all Christians have at least some faith. And the point here is that whatever faith you have, whether strong or weak, all of that faith has been given to you by God, assigned to us by God, as it says. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Being saved by grace through faith is a gift. So it doesn't make sense to boast about your faith, even if you have strong faith, because every ounce of your faith is a gift from God. Uh, Let's say you show up to to your room tonight and there's a present sitting on your desk, nicely wrapped, a pretty bow on top. And your roommate is there and says, hey, I bought you this gift. And you untie that bow and open it up and there it is. An iPhone 11. Five tickets to Disneyland. And a new Bruin card for you. A special Bruin card. Equipped with 19P (laughs) for the rest of your time in college. So you never have to learn how to cook. What would your reaction be to your roommate? Wow, I really earned these gifts. Why? Well, I, I worked really hard to earn the money to buy these gifts. Well, I guess I'm just really awesome to deserve these gifts. No, no, no. You, you, have, you, you didn't deserve this gift at all. You didn't buy it. You didn't, you didn't do anything to, to receive it. Uh, you simply got it. Your, your roommate gave it to you. You don't boast about gifts, you simply receive it. Here, Paul is saying that your faith, whether it's strong, whether it's weak, if you are a mature Christian, one of the godliest people around, all of that was given to you by God. All of that is a gift. Does it make any sense to be prideful about it? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why should we have an attitude of humility? Because the gospel is the message that tells us that we are sinners deserving nothing but the wrath of God. That even our righteousness is as, is as filthy rags before God. But it's a message that tells us that Jesus paid it all. That he has given you grace. He has given you faith. He has given you hope. All of this is a gift. And when we realize that this is true of every single person in the church, then we're going to be humble. 
There's no reason to boast. There's no reason to elevate yourself above someone else because each of you simply are sinners saved by grace. All of you have simply been given a gift of salvation. So the gospel humbles us, but that's just the starting point. If we're going to grow in our attitude of humility, we're going to have to understand another really important truth in verses four to five. And that truth is that each of us is a part of a body. Let's now look at the second change the gospel brings to our relationships. Number two, an understanding of unity. Verses four to five, let's read them. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse four starts off with that word for, this connecting word, this conjunction pulling from verse three. Paul is now supplying the reason for verse three. Why should you not think of yourself more highly than you ought for or because every single one of us is a part of the body and every single part is essential and plays an essential role. Would you look at any part of your own body and say, "Eh, I don't need you. If you woke up in the morning and your left thumb was on the other side of the room, that's a problem. If you woke up and your right calf decided not to work for 24 hours, that's a problem. Every part of the body is essential. And in the same way, every person in the church is essential. You can really sum up this body metaphor uh, with this phrase. Unity in diversity. And you can kind of wrap up these two verses with this tidy little phrase, unity in diversity. First of all, this is about unity. Verse four calls us one body. Verse five says we are one body in Christ. We are one, we are unified. But then verse four also gives us diversity. We are many members who do not all have the same function. This is unity in diversity. We are one organic unity. We are one unified body but we are made up of different parts that have different functions. Now, verse five ends with an interesting phrase. And individually members one of another. That's weird. You catch what Paul is saying here? You'd expect verse five to say something like, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of it or individually members of this body. But it says that we're individually members one of another. Yes, we are members of the same body. Paul already made that point. But now he is using an even more extreme illustration of our unity. We are members one of another. We are connected, not just with the body as a whole, but to individuals in the church. You over here are connected to you back there. What you do up front here affects the person over here. We are connected to other individuals in the church. If your left arm is cut and bleeding, your right arm doesn't say, well, that's your problem. No, they are connected. The the same blood flows through the entire body, the left arm and the right arm. And 
And what happens to the left arm affects the right arm. If the, if the left arm bleeds out and bleeds to death, then the right arm does as well. Uh, and so the right arm will respond. The right arm is going to grab the, the cut to, to stop the bleeding. In fact, the entire body reacts. The mouth calls for help. The feet run to get some gauze and tape. And the eyes focus to apply the gauze and the tape just on the right spot. Because what affects one part of the body affects the rest, affects all the other individual members. If we're going to understand biblical unity at the deepest level, each one of us has to feel connected not just to GOC as a whole, not just to Grace Church as a whole, but to the individuals that are around you. That guy, that guy, that's just so annoying. And you dread when he enters the circle that you're talking in. Guess what? Spiritually speaking, you are connected with that guy, that girl. That is just so hard to get along with. Drama queen, gossip queen. You are one. You are spiritually united with her. Now, that person in the ministry where it's just so hard to get along with, uh, you're talking to them, you're asking all the questions, and a one-word answers would be an accomplishment. You're just pulling teeth there. Nothing's happening. You are connected with him as well. And, and even, even your, your best friends, uh, the ones you're closest to uh, in this ministry, Understand that, that your relationship goes far beyond just laughing, sharing inside jokes, hanging out together, really getting each other. You're on the same wavelength. You're clicking. That's all great. But, but your relationship in Christ is much deeper and much more profound. It is that you are connected in a way that what happens to them affects you. That when something good happens to them, that's something good for you. And that when something bad happens to them, that's bad for you. And therefore you can truly rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you feel connected, not just to the ministry as a whole, but to the individual people that you're sitting next to? So unity is crucial, but unity in and of itself is not the goal. We are together, we are connected in order to accomplish a purpose, and that is to serve one another. That's the third change the gospel brings to our relationships. A commitment to serving. We've seen an attitude of humility, an understanding of unity, and third, a commitment to serving, verses six to eight. Uh, These verses are all about using your spiritual gifts to serve others. Uh, Verse six begins with the phrase, having gifts. Paul assumes that everyone in the church has gifts, and that's true. Every Christian, without exception, is given a spiritual gift. But it's not just enough to to have gifts. Look toward the end of verse 6. Look at the phrase, let us use them. There's an emphasis on action. Uh, Let's get active. Let's get going. Let's move. Let's use our gifts. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? How often do you use them? Have you used them tonight? Now, there are seven uh, seven different gifts listed here. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Uh, There are other lists in in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. 
uh, that give us additional gifts that are not listed here. None of the lists are meant to be exhausted, uh, exhaustive. Each one is just giving us a sample of the spiritual gifts. And each of us is given a different combination of spiritual gifts. So imagine that God is the master painter and he has a palette with all the colors that you can imagine. And before him stands a blank canvas. He dips his paintbrush into the blue and paints a few strokes. Uh, Dips it into the gold and paints a few strokes. Uh, Dips it into the red and paints like a tiny stroke. And then he moves on to the next blank canvas and he dips his paintbrush in the green and paints a few pictures. Uh, Dips it in the orange, paints a little bit. In the purple, paints a little bit. And he moves on to the next canvas with a different combination of colors and different proportions. And when you stand back and look at all these canvases, you can see that some of them have predominantly one color. And it's obvious what's standing out. And then there's other canvases that are more of a blend and a mixture of several different colors. Well, in the same way, each Christian is giftedly differently by God in different proportions, each uniquely beautiful and each uniquely designed to give glory to the master painter. So do you know your blend of spiritual gifts? Well, to get you started, uh, we can look at verse 6. The first gift listed here is prophecy. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. A common misconception about the gift of prophecy is that it's restricted only to predicting the future. Uh, That it's only talking about foretelling the future. But prophecy also includes the ministry of forth-telling, speaking forth the truth of God's word found in the Bible. So the gift of prophecy can be foretelling or it can be forth-telling, but what's foundational for us here is that it's a, it's a public proclamation of the truth. 1 Corinthians 14.3 helps clarify what the gift of prophecy is. It says, on the, what, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So what is prophecy? Speaking publicly to people on behalf of God to build them up, encourage them, and comfort them. And as verse 6 says, those of us with this gift are to do it in proportion to our faith. Again, like in verse 3, this is referring to the measurement, uh, the amount of faith that you have. So Paul is saying, use this gift of prophecy in proportion to how much faith you have. To the degree that you trust in God, use your gift of prophecy. Go for it. Don't be shy. Proclaim God's truth in counseling, in discipleship, in small groups, in one-on-ones, trusting that he will use your words for his glory. The second spiritual gift listed here is service. Verse seven, if service in our serving, the Greek word for service is a very broad term, but it's the broadness of this term that really make it profound. This is serving people in a way that helps them spiritually, but also physically, emotionally, this is serving them in whatever way that you can, offering whatever help you can. If you're going through a trial and you're going through pain, I'm going to comfort you. If you need a rebuke because you're out of line, I'm going to give it to you. 
If you want to grow, I'll disciple you. If this ministry team over here has a shortage of people, sign me up. I'm there. If you need a ride to the store, I'll give you a ride. Forget Uber. If the church needs volunteers in the nursery, I'll be there. Uh, I, will, I will help those depraved sons of Adam. You see, the profundity of this broad term service is in its broadness. We serve in whatever way that's needed, in whatever way we can. Uh, the third gift on this list is teaching. Uh, verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. Teaching is communicating God's word clearly, convincingly, and compellingly. Uh, those with the gift of teaching are able to sit down for long periods of time and study God's word to get it exactly right. And then to organize that information in a coherent way and then stand up and teach it to others where it is memorable, clear, and where they take it to heart. The fourth gift is exhortation, verse eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So we've seen three speaking gifts so far, prophecy, teaching, and exhortation. Well, what's the difference between the three? You could, you could say it this way. Prophecy proclaims God's truth. Teaching explains God's truth. And exhortation applies God's truth. So exhortation is calling people to obey God's word. Now, back in colonial America, church services used to include an official time of exhortation led by a minister called the exhorter. The most famous was a man named Isaac Bacchus, who was born in 1724 and ministered into the 1800s. During these colonial church services, there would be a sermon, but then after the sermon, the service wasn't done. After the preacher got off the stage, then the exhorter would get up there and he would say, hey, preacher's been very clear today. We know exactly what God's word says now. And so, Mr. Smith, you're going to have to keep more honest books for your store. And uh, Brother John, well, you're going to have to reconcile with your father because we all know that you had an argument with him last week. And uh, Sister Mary over here, we know you've been gossiping about Sister Sarah over there. You need to repent. Pretty intense, right? But I kind of like it. So let's start over here. (laughs) Now, we know that it doesn't have to be done in that way. It doesn't have to be public for everyone to hear. But we got to do this. We got to exhort to obey God's truth, that that we would love each other enough to tell them not just what they want to hear, but what they need to hear to come in accordance with obedience to God's word. The fifth fifth gift is giving. The one who contributes in generosity. Who has the gift of giving? Well, clearly it's the rich people, right? They got all the money, so you must have the gift of giving. Uh, That's not what it says here. Uh, What it says here has nothing to do with your income or your bank account or how many zeros are in that account. What matters here is generosity. 
Uh, This is about willingness, not wealth. It's about your heart, not your paycheck. A good example of this is found in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3, when Paul talks about the generosity of the Philippians. Uh, They were poor. Uh, They were suffering extreme poverty, it says. And yet that extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond their means. They gave until it hurt to support Paul's ministry. So whether you have a little bit or a lot, or if you're somewhere in the middle, the heart of the matter is generosity. Uh, This is about dropping money in the offering plate. This is about using your money to serve and help others. And this is, the, this is the person who looks at all that they have and all that they've been given and doesn't say, hmm, how much can I keep? But rather they say, how much can I give? Sixth gift is that of leadership. The one who leads with zeal. You can lead in all different kinds of ways. You can lead a small group. A ministry team. You can uh, lead a group of four-year-olds. Uh, you can uh, organize a class event. Uh, you can lead a prayer meeting. You might uh, lead from up front or from behind the scenes. You might lead with your organizational and administrative skills, or you might lead by motivating people. But however you choose to lead, however you know how to lead, there's one thing that you got to have. If you're going to be a leader, you got to have some zeal, Paul says. You better have some passion. You better have some excitement. You better have some eagerness in your leadership. Otherwise, when you're leading, you might find that you look behind you and no one's following. So lead with zeal. A seventh gift on this list is mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When you see a burning building, you'll see a lot of people running away from it. And you're going to see a few people run towards it. First responders, policemen, firemen, maybe a few unsung heroes, but only a few. When someone is going through a tragedy in life, pain, suffering, and there's a lot of tears, you're going to find a lot of people running away from that person. They don't know what to do with that. Uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, Let me know when when things are better. Then then we can be friends again. And you're going to see a few people run towards that person and say, I'm there for you. Uh, This shoulder, it's a tear pillow. Just, Just let it all out. And these are the people who have the gift of mercy. Uh, these people who lean in to those who, who have difficulties in their lives and, 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 and have this keen awareness of who is hurting and how to comfort them. And they may not know what to say all the time, but the important thing is that they show this mercy with cheerfulness, as it says. Showing mercy with cheerfulness is saying, even though it's hard right now, even though I don't even really know what to say, and, and even though things are, these are pretty awkward as, as we're trying to have this conversation and you're mainly crying and you're making me cry too, even though we're, we're suffering through all of this, I love you. You're my friend and I'm here. And it is truly a joy and an honor to be with you during this time. That is showing mercy with 
cheerfulness. So here are some examples of spiritual gifts that God gives. So so where do we go from here? Uh, Let's move to our three applications. They are to explore, experiment, and inquire. First of all, explore. Explore the spiritual gifts that God gives. We've seen this list in Romans 12. Now read the list in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Discover all the varieties of gifts that God gives. Uh, Then explore GOC, Crossroads, Grace Church. Get a good survey of the land. What kind of ministries are going on and which ones can I join? Secondly, experiment. Uh, Once you find a ministry that you're interested in, join it. Try it. Experiment. If you're good at it and people are saying, man, you, you are edifying us in this ministry, then boom, guess what? You found your spiritual gift. If you try it, if you experiment, and people are like, oh, you're bad at that. And uh, man, I'm not edified when you do that. Then you know what? Try it again. And, and maybe you'll get better at it. But maybe they'll again say, oh, you're bad at that. And you should stop that. If that's the case, please stop. And allow someone else to serve in that ministry uh, that they're gifted in. And you experiment with something else. But don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to jump in. The way that you discover your spiritual gifts is by going for it, uh, by experimenting, by trying. Number three, inquire. Ask around. What can I help with? What are the needs? Hey, how do you think I'm gifted and how do you think I can use these gifts at the church? Come find Austin Duncan or someone on staff or your small group leader and ask them, uh, what are some ways that I can serve? Ask these questions. I bet Austin Duncan has a list of 15 things that you could do to serve Grace on Campus right now. Uh, So explore, experiment, and inquire. All right, let's move on to the three myths, the three lies geoseers believe and talk about the truth. Number one, myth number one, freshmen don't serve at GOC. Freshmen don't serve at GOC. Uh, This myth comes from a very well-meaning sentiment uh, in our ministry. Oh, little freshmen, little freshmen, Just sit back and absorb. You guys hear this before? Sit back and learn and grow. Uh, Don't don't worry about serving. Now, the problem with that is, one, uh, there is nothing in the Bible that talks about that. Thou freshmen shalt not serve. (laughs) But number two, if really your goal is that the freshmen grow spiritually as much as possible, and you tell them that, you shouldn't serve, you have cut them off from a significant means of growth. You grow by serving, learning to serve as a sinner with other sinners. You're going to grow a lot. Uh, Learning to be foot washers, uh, to to die to yourself and to your own preferences and use your time and your energy to, to help someone else grow in the faith. Well, that's going to grow you as well. That's going to challenge you. That's going to stretch you. And so I do think that there are a lot of uh, good 
progress that we've made here. Uh, I, I said this about four years ago, and I think that uh, GOC has responded. I have seen some pictures on Facebook of like 90 freshmen on sound team now. Uh, and uh, Caleb says that you guys have committed, so thanks. Oh, you're checking it out, you know, and I think that, that you guys are growing in this. But if you do feel uh, as a freshman that, ah, oh, you know, I just can't make a difference and I'm just here to absorb, I'm spongy sponge, then yes, you are spongy sponge, but you are also there to serve. Uh, and if you want to grow to the maximum amount during your freshman year, then it's also going to involve learning to serve. Myth number two, Grace Church doesn't need me to serve. Grace Church doesn't need me to serve. Grace Church is so big. Grace on campus is a well-oiled machine. You've heard it before. If you haven't, you heard it now in a weird voice. Why do I need to get involved? Uh, my, My involvement means nothing to this gigantic ministry. Friend, let me tell you something. Being at a mega church and a mega Bible study doesn't mean that there are less ways to serve. It means that there's more. It means that there are more hurting people around you. It means that there are more people falling through the cracks. It means that there are more ministry teams that you can be a part of. And it means that there are more non-Christians that are hovering around church and GOC who need to hear the gospel. And so being at a big ministry doesn't mean that they need you less it means that they need you more. And whether your church is big or small, you are absolutely essential. Go back to the the body analogy, right? You're an eye. You're a foot. You're a finger. You're an ear. We need all of you because if the body is missing a few parts, even one part, that's really bad. And so the the body of Christ cannot be 100% functional without you. To the degree that you are lazy or you hide your gifts, you don't use it, is the degree that your church suffers. Myth number three, ministry only happens on ministry teams. It's that time of year. What ministry team are you joining? What ministry team are you joining? What ministry team are you joining? Uh, It's a good question to ask because it's a great way of serving. A-team, rides team, tabling, fishing, uh, what we heard up here, Uh, Welcome follow-up team. Uh, These are great ways of serving in formal, official ways. And true ministry is happening on the ministry teams. But did you know that you can serve and not be on a ministry team? You might be meeting up with someone at GOC, uh, maybe someone who doesn't come very often, someone who's kind of slipping through the cracks. And People don't really know you even meet with that person, but you do it to serve them. Uh, You have lunch with someone and talk about the Lord. Uh, You go up to that person that you know has had a tough week and you offer them a specific word of encouragement. Uh, You're texting people to keep them accountable. There are so many different ways that you can serve that don't involve being on a ministry team. I remember I had a discipler here at GOC who liked to give me pop quizzes. And uh, this was one pop quiz. It was a short one. He's like, ministry is... (laughs) that was the quiz. Ministry is, and he wanted me to fill in the blank. And I don't know what I said, but ministry is, and then he filled in the blank when I couldn't get the right answer. He said, ministry is people. Ministry is people. 
It's not necessarily programs or teams or events. It is the people involved. And so are you helping people? Are you serving people? Are you teaching and exhorting and showing mercy to people? Whether you're on a ministry team or not. Because if you're doing all that people work, then you are serving uh, something I look forward to every year is Christmas. It uh, seems like it just passed, but I'm already looking, to the ne- looking forward to the next one. As an elementary school kid, I remember that uh, one reason I like Christmas so much is that our parents let me and my brothers and my sister stay up until midnight, and we could open up presents on Christmas Eve. And so Christmas Eve, 11.59, me, my brother, and my sister are standing in the kitchen looking at the, the microwave uh, clock there, and uh, we're just counting down. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Midnight strikes, it's Christmas, we run. I mean, we run to the Christmas tree and we tear open those presents like wild animals. And then when we're done, I do a little, uh, little walkthrough because sometimes there's a present hidden back there, right? So you got to go around the tree, make sure you don't waste any gifts. In fact, I, I still do that, even with like my kids now, my family, like, like, we're not wasting any gifts. We got to open all of them. Well, the tragedy of the church is that God has given gifts, but some of them remain unopened. And the church suffers. Grace Church, Crossroads, GOC, isn't what it could be if people would actually use their gifts. I hope that during these four years here, you'll experience church the way God intended that you'll truly feel connected, not, not just to the church, not just to GOC, but to the individuals around you. And I hope that you'll experience this deep level of friendship that scripture calls us to, and that you'll give this, this depth of friendship to others as you experience how the gospel changes your relationships. Let's bow in a word of prayer.